Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur, and this is Season 5, Episode 11. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Thanks for checking it out, rating, subscribing, all the things that you're doing to get the word out and just generally being amazing. Love you so much. And I'd love you even more if you join the Digital Church Facebook group. Why? Because I actually want to get to know you. I want to learn from you. I want to share resources with you. I want you to get connected into a community of Um, over 600 leaders now who are learning and growing together all things digital church how do we do discipleship and evangelism spiritual formation in this digital age if you like this podcast I think you're going to like the conversations we're having there and I would love for you to join I'll love you even if you don't but I would love for you to join so I can get to know you better also of course we have this weekly video tutorial series you can check it out at the link below but tons of free resources there just to get you connected into help practical help with the stuff you're doing day to day with communications, creativity, and digital content. Today on the podcast, we have Grace P. Cho. Grace is an editor of Encourage, and we'll talk about her a little bit more in a second. I want to give you an intro to her, but want to, of course, give a shout out to the sponsor of this podcast who make bringing Grace P. Cho to you even possible. So thanks so much to Wycliffe College. And if you want some Wycliffe swag, you hear me talking about this amazing world-class institution uh, every week. We got top scholars. We got world-class faculty. We've got a Harry Potter vibe on the campus. What's not to love? Uh, But beyond that, I want to get you some swag because swag is fun and getting mail is fun. So if you go to the website at the link below in the show notes, that's wickliffecollege.ca slash wordmadedigital, um, they want to send you some stuff. They'd love to just uh, send you some stuff in the mail. And hey, whether you're interested in growing your own spiritual formation or you're looking to grow as a leader or whatever it may be, I encourage you to check them out. They have courses and full programs, certificates, all kinds of things if you're looking at that. Thanks also, of course, to Compassion, amazing partners and sponsors of this podcast. It's such a privilege to work with them and to be part of the work that they're doing around the world. It gets us out of our own Uh, what can be sometimes selfish places, right? Where we're just thinking of our own needs and what our own issues are and remember the great needs of the world around us. And of course, as Christians, we will be known by our love. And so we want to love people in the midst of this crazy COVID pandemic crisis. It's affecting all of us, but much more so in the most impoverished areas of the world. So Compassion's partnering with the local church to do something about it. And you, the church here, and your context can do something about it. Click on that link below, compassion.ca or compassion.com. We'd love for you to check it out. Okay, Grace P. Cho. She's a Korean-American writer, editor, speaker, and she's a poet, which is pretty cool. She's the editorial manager of Encourage. It's an online community of Dayspring cards. I don't know if you know it, but they have a huge following and a huge amount of resources all around, really, for women, around courage and how to live a Christian life. But she's been featured in all kinds of publications herself, as well as being the editor uh, there at Encourage. But we're going to be talking today about publishing, women and women of color in publishing, what it's like to work with an editor, and also what it's like for someone else to edit your voice, especially if that person may come from a different cultural perspective than you. How do you not lose yourself in that process? So enjoy the conversation with Grace P. Cho. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 5, sponsored by Compassion Canada and Wycliffe College. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. 
The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Grace P. Cho, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm really glad to have you today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I am not going to lie, a bit jealous of you say you're um, near Disneyland, which <laughs> is a magical place and I would love to go, but it's closed right now. It is. And I love that you think it's magical because not everyone thinks that. <laughs> so, and I think it's magical. I know, I know it's not that way for everyone. So thank you for understanding that. <laughs> well, hey, before we, you know, today we want to talk about um, your world and your passions. You're an editor and you are yes. also, um, particularly we want to talk today about about a new book that you've edited. And I happen to know one of the authors uh, personally that's involved in it, a Canadian uh, woman down the road. And anyways, we want to get to the book, about Take Heart. Yes. It's about when life's not okay. But mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll meander our way there through a few different things. So before we do that, can you tell us, introduce yourself a little bit, give us some context of who you are? Sure. I am a Korean American writer and editor. Um, I also would say that I'm a speaker um, and newly I'm adding poet to that list. I don't feel quite comfortable saying that, um, but I think this year actually has been um, a year of exploration in my creativity. Um, and so I'm very sheepishly adding poet to my, um, to my repertoire. Oh, I love that. I mean, on your, your personal site, you have some of, some of your poetry, you have some of your work. So, okay, let's do. There. tell me, let's, because now you're saying it, you say sheepish, sheepishly, why does that <laughs> feel, um, what's sort of the, the nervousness around calling yourself a poet? Well, I think my whole writing journey has been one where, um, I, I, I think, I don't know about, uh, anyone else, but a lot of writers I know had stories where they had their second grade teacher tell them, you should be a writer one day or had their parents really invest in them. And I, um, never really had any of those experiences. Mm. Um, academically in terms of writing, I wasn't very good. So all the way until grad school, I despised essays. I despised, um, writing in long form. And so it was to even call myself a writer that took several years. I used to say, I just write on the side. Um, I used to work as a pastor and so I did write on the side. Um, but to step into that fully, that was, that felt uncomfortable. And I used to say that sheepishly. And now I feel the same way about calling myself a poet. Um, I never had training or I never, um, explored it much. And I thought that was a silly thing inside me. I'm not mm -hmm. a poet. Um, I don't have, uh, I'm not good at rhyming or I'm not good at thinking of words on the spot or, um, any of those, any of those thoughts that tell me that I'm being an imposter to call myself a poet. Um, and so now I'm trying to say it and practice saying the words in order to make it become real, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I think I would imagine there's a, a level of vulnerability in poetry that is because it's less straightforward maybe than a typical written. Right. Um, 
Um, <laughs> and so maybe just more, more uh, vulnerable to critique or like people thinking you're a bad poet where maybe an essay is a little harder to say you're bad at writing. <laughs> you know, I, I, I haven't thought of that, but I, the critic in my head tells me, who am I to even call myself that? Hmm. Um, and particularly thinking of, uh, of not anyone specific, but who would say she's not creative enough or who does she think she is to all of a sudden call herself that when, um, she doesn't have the experience or she's never written in that form before or anything like that. I'm, I'm assuming other people, other creatives, especially must feel that way when they venture into something new. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm practicing. I'm practicing calling myself what I want to be so that I could be better at it. And there's something about, um, I love that. I know a lot of women, especially um, who are mm-hmm. wanting to be speakers um, or, or have a more public kind of I mean, a voice in writing or a voice in speaking. Mm-hmm. I think for women, especially I've heard over and over that it feels like you're not supposed to say that. Uh, right. Uh, and so then you don't. Mm -hmm. Um, you've been doing it for a while, but you're nervous to call you. I I know a a woman who is a professional full-time speaker, um, in her, I think she's in her fifties and, and she Mm -hmm. for years avoided calling herself a speaker or a Bible teacher because Mm -hmm. she just Mm -hmm. was shirking what that, the weight of the word or something and what it, right. Yeah. I also, I also wonder if it's, um, it sounds like we're being arrogant mm. to call ourselves that because um, show me show me your qualifications show me why you deserve that title um, and I think a lot of women do feel that way not just in the creative world but in every sphere um, it's hard to call ourselves something or to even elevate ourselves and say this is who I am mm. and showing up fully as that um, because the world hasn't always been kind to women in that way or. They haven't been very encouraging in that way. Yeah. I think that's probably fair. And I mean, not like a fair statement. Um, mm-hmm. One of the main uh, really hearts of why I, when I found you, uh, discovered mm-hmm. who you were, uh, I saw in your website this line that says, you have a heart for women of color's voices being elevated in the publishing world. Um, so yes. not just women, but women of color. This was like, when I saw that line, I was like, I need to talk Grace Pichot. <laughs> um, because I need to get into this story with you because uh, mm-hmm. I'm a white woman. And uh, so there's certainly things about a woman, like as we just discussed, maybe there's some challenges, but, but yes. not a woman of color. And, and right. so uh, I was very intrigued at this idea of learning from you um, what's missing, what's the difference. Um, and particularly even in that, is that even a further barrier to naming who you are and what you do? So just uh, let's start opening oh, wow, yeah. a little bit. I'd love to know more about, um, about why you're so passionate about certain mm-hmm. group of, of people. I'll connect it to my own story yeah, about coming into this writing world and even my first experience um, of blogging and going into the blogging world. I think uh, it, maybe it's not as prominent now, but when I first started writing a couple of years ago, there were a lot of blogging conferences. And when I went to my first one and my only one, I didn't 
realize the world I was stepping into. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in a, in a predominantly Asian American setting. Um, I'm also the daughter of missionaries and pastors. So I grew up overseas, oh, but still predominantly surrounded. Huh? What was that? What country were, or what area? Oh, I grew up in Kazakhstan. Really? In Central Asia. Yeah. Oh, wow. I have a brother in Central Asia. I love all these connections that we have. <laughs> we'll have to, I can't talk about too much about that uh, in this recording. So we'll have to talk about that offline later. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Back to your story. Yes. Um, so I remember walking into the big hall where we were all meeting for the first time and recognizing that I was, I think, one of three Asian American women that I saw. Um, and I wasn't prepared for that after In room having, of a thousand people or something or hundreds of people. Um, hundreds, hundreds. I would say hundreds. Yeah. Um, and that, I don't know why I was so taken aback, but maybe because I was, I was stepping into something new and I had, um, I, I wasn't exposed as much. Maybe that's why. So stepping into a room full of women who didn't look like me, um, made me realize maybe this isn't the world for me. Um, but I couldn't shake the, the call to write. And so I, I just kept going. Um, and over time I realized that my cultural identity journey along with my writing journey, they kind of happened at the same time. So, uh, I mentioned before I'm Korean American, but for most of my life, I really hated, uh, for most of my teenage years and up, I really despised my Korean Americanness because I felt very othered mm-hmm. by my um, cultural identity and, and the fact that I'm still being asked, you know, where are you really from? Do you, or, or being asked if I know my mother tongue and for shame that I don't know my mother tongue as well that, as I should, oh, wow. or that I'm not raising my kids to speak um, Korean and being shamed by that by random strangers. Really? Um, yes. But that's not and so even the language that there's sort of a judgment on, not just that I hear that question is I hear that people get asked that question, not where are you from or where are you really from? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I know I'm from California, <laughs> um, but, but the question exactly. of, of language is even judged. Right. Huh? Yeah. And, and you know, it comes from both sides. Mm-hmm. It comes from, Korean adults who immigrated here, um, and they want us, the next generation, to hold on to uh, the things that tie us together, uh, predominantly our language, um, and but also being shamed by people who are not Korean and and maybe have visited Korea or lived in Korea or served in Korea during a war and being shamed that I don't represent well. So on both sides, I'm being shamed for not being an ideal Korean American, whatever that even means. Um, so that, that cultural identity journey was overlapped by my writing journey. And so understanding and understanding how to have a voice and what my voice sounds like took, took a couple years. Um, and as I stepped further into the writing world, particularly as the editor at Encourage, um, I noticed, and, and, I, and I've walked with a lot of friends who've written books and women of color who've written books and seeing our experiences and how we're one of very few again. It's like walking into that room um, and seeing, oh, okay, I, I see you. 
one, two other Asian American women. And would you, was it really and, like you, you might make eye contact, you kind of like a knowing nod across the room or there's an acknowledgement, um, you know, silent acknowledgement of some kind. I feel like it's, um, we're, we're not even matching our eyes because mm-hmm. we're just in our own spaces. And we, at the time for me, it was, it was a, I didn't even want to acknowledge that, that I don't belong here. So looking at that person and matching eyes meant for me, and this is not everyone's experience, but for me, it felt like we're both acknowledging the elephant in the room and I don't want to do that. Right. Okay. Um, because that felt like we don't belong then. So, and so I've noticed this of, of not only as authors and writers that there's a lack of voices represented, um, and also hearing that if we're a person of color, a writer of color, that there are only certain things we should write. So having, you know, in lots of conversations about racial justice or racial reconciliation, maybe that's what they would want us to write, not about memoir not about motherhood, uh, not about anything else. But when it comes to that, if they're looking for writers of color and they meaning publishers, Mm. they might be looking for people who only want to talk about that. So I, I've seen that, uh, with my own eyes, I've seen how we've been, um, pushed into a corner sometimes of like, this is, this is what we want you to write about. And, and then also seeing the lack of diversity within the publishing industry um, and how that actually affects writers. So when you write a book, it takes maybe two years um, average to get it published. But in that time, after you even submit your manuscript, it goes into the hands of editors, lots of editors and marketers and publicists. And if you're a, a writer of color and it gets handed off to someone who is not aware um, of cultural differences or nuances particularly, then it's not going to be understood. Mm -hmm. So I've noticed how things are changed. Even as an editor, my job is to know the writer's voice well enough, to know their story well enough so that I can edit accordingly, right? I'm not trying to make them sound like me. I'm trying to make them sound like a better them. Yeah, right. Um, and so when I, when the editor doesn't know the author or writer, and because it goes through so many hands before it gets to the end, I've just seen how uh, sometimes it gets washed over. Um, sometimes language, language, certain um, nuance of words are taken out mm. or changed. Or sound can more you go back and fix this? Or something. Um, or, or maybe just not even understanding the cultural context of why this person wrote the way they did, or what is this pain that I'm experiencing? And if you don't understand that pain, then you want to correct it. Uh, and I think that's natural. I think that's human nature. When you don't understand something, you're trying to put it into the context that you know. Um, and that's tricky as an editor, because you, you I, I'm sure as a publishing, uh, an editor in a publishing company, you have to go through so many books. So I don't know if everyone has that capacity to do that, but I have seen white editors who are aware, who have done some of the work of, um, at least learning about, uh, racism and, and the construct of whiteness and having those eyes being able to edit and work on a book that 
honors the original author's voice and experiences. So I think that's where it really came from is seeing the tension and seeing the lack of women of color on all sides of the book industry. So not only authors, but editors, publicists, um, marketers, even graphic designers, and knowing uh, the the artistic side of right what that means. So yeah. uh, there's so many things about that that I have a heart for. And I'm not saying like we should, you know, blow up this whole system. I don't think that's how it works. And sometimes that might be the way people want to go about it. And that's okay. That's their thing. Um, but what I really want to see are women of color on all sides and in all different positions and particularly positions, um, that allow other women of color to come in too. Um, and that's my heart is I want to become an editor and a writer that allows the doors to open up for other women of color, um, because we're not heard. Hmm. And, and my biggest pet peeve is not only when we're not heard, but when someone else goes and tells our own, tells our story in their voice. Right. Um, I have a really hard time with that. And I know there might be exceptions that people think are okay, but personally, I, I find that very hard when we're not even given the space or the platform to tell stories in our own voice and then someone to come in and tell stories that are ours. Um, so yeah, that that's my big spiel about why I'm passionate about that and why I want to see that happen more, mm-hmm. um, maybe even through me. Yes. Yes. As I continue to work in this industry. Yeah. Oh, I I have so many questions. I'm trying to decide which one to ask first. Uh, But one of the things that it reminds me of um, in the the film world is about Mm. less about women of color, but more women in general is that I think it's called Mm -hmm. the Bechdel test which is, uh, the gist is basically a film has to, to pass this test. It has to have, um, two women characters who are Mm. having a conversation in the film that is not about men that they are interested Mm. in dating or being romantic Mm -hmm. with. I mean, I'm butchering it, but I think if people have heard about this before, you can look it up, but this is basically a study that shows that like, there are very, very few movies that exist in out of Hollywood that show women as interesting, diverse characters Mm. with lives, thoughts and feelings of their own that aren't in relation to the men of the film. And so Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what the study is trying to say is that when men control what gets produced in film, um, these are the kinds of films that are created. They're male-centric films. And and in the same way that I'm I'm just trying to imagine that in the same way if the publishing world is predominantly a white industry in America, Mm -hmm. then the Mm -hmm. stories that are told and the and the angle from which they are told is through, or maybe I should say the filters, it sounds like what you're describing as filters Mm -hmm. continue to be white. So, so, you know, what do we, what do we do about, uh, as you say, like the, the machine that a book goes through, uh, Mm -hmm. is, is many filters of editing and marketing. There's a whole business team involved in getting a book out the door. So, um, should people self-publish, forget this industry, we can do it ourselves, go on Amazon? Like what right. do we do? <laughs> How do we hear? More? Um, that's a good, it's a good question. How do we get voices out yeah. when the bigger industry is 
has a lot of gatekeepers or has a lot of filters through which they choose certain people of color um, or certain writers of color. And I don't know. (laughs) That's the real answer is I wonder what, when, when it'll shift. Um, And I think that's why we need all types of publishing to happen. So if an author feels like um, the traditional route is not fast enough or is not, um, is not allowing me to be fully myself, then definitely go the route that you can. Um, I wish it was all of it. I, I know that's such a generic answer, but I wish there was a push and a wave in all ways. So if people want to self-publish, like, please go do that. So your book can get out there. Um, or if they really want to go the traditional route, uh, please let's have people in there. Um, who can understand and um, and who can elevate and push for your book and advocate for your book with on the business side, on the inside um, of the company. But again, that takes time, right? So I'm not saying that white um, editors and publicists and marketers can't do the advocacy too. Um, I'm just saying that when you have a different perspective at the table where decisions are made, it affects the decisions that are made yes. um, because someone is finally saying something else and bringing a perspective that no one even could have imagined or thought of. And so I, I know that that route will take a lot longer. And so I wish for all the avenues to be opened up for um, writers of color. And then it also goes back to even writing itself is a privileged work mm-hmm. to have a computer, to have internet, to write and have the time to do that. It's a privileged work. So I, I understand there's so many ba- barriers um, to us being published and heard. Um, and so I wish that there were, um, it was made easier mm. um, instead of having more obstacles because we already have obstacles. How can we make the road smoother for writers of color to be heard and to be published um, and seen as valid, <clears throat> excuse me, as <clears throat> uh, to be seen as valid in their own right um, and not because they are, um, like you said with that test, are they just passing the minimum, very uh, bare minimum that the publishing company requires um, or what they want to hear from people of color? Can people of color, writers of color, show up fully as themselves and still um, be seen as, um, be accepted? Can their manuscripts still be accepted as they are? So it's a very nuanced conversation. And I think there are lots of perspectives to it, but um, I wish the floodgates would just open up for um, as many voices to be heard. Yes. And and so um, we're sort of, um, dancing around the work you do as an editor or you're, you're speaking around mm-hmm. it, but not specifically for, for us who are less familiar with the industry. Um, but we're, but we would dream of being a writer. Um, there's probably people listening okay. who they, they got a book in them. They're going to want to find an editor one day. T- can you tell us what does an editor actually do for you? <laughs> I mean, besides like they edit the book, but like, can you tell us what does an editor do? But then also, um, how would you find a match? Like, what would you suggest to people if they need an editor? If there's a hundred, right. a list of a hundred, how would you suggest you find someone who is the right fit for you? 
there's a lot of ways I can answer that question, but I think it comes back to what do you need as a writer, right? So if you're a, a, a new writer and you're just looking for someone to make your work better, um, instead of hiring an editor for yourself, because it can be a lot of money, I would suggest a peer, peer edit. So like joining a writing group or gathering a group of friends that write together um, and having that kind of basically creating a community around this idea of writing together. And therefore um, you get free feedback <laughs> in essence. Now, if you're wanting to go into the publishing world, I think there are different levels um, or different roles that editors play. And I am not, I don't work for a publishing company. And so I can only speak from my, from my experience as an editorial manager at Encourage. Um, we have guest missions that we accept every quarter. Guest mission. So I'm not a submission, a yeah. guest mission. I love that. <laughs> oh, oh, guest, guest submission. That's what I meant. Yeah. Uh, and so that's one way that you can get a, a foot into the door for other people and a, a larger audience to read your work. And I know a lot of, um, you know, online publications do this where they accept guest submissions. And so, um, that's one step I would say is, um, it's not a direct edit, um, but it's just a way to practice your writing. Um, now in the publishing world, you, an acquisitions editor would come and find you, or you would go and seek out, um, maybe through an agent. I heard it's very difficult if you try to do it yourself, um, because they may not accept anything, but from an agent. Mm -hmm. So, um, submitting your book proposal to a publishing company and that would go through the acquisitions editor who, um, whose job is to scout for new writers, um, and authors, um, for their company to acquire. So it all depends on what you need and what, um, what step you are on in the journey. And so then when you, when you find the right editor, um, what do they do beyond just like they're checking the spelling and the grammar? <laughs> um, right. What is, right. The, what is an edit? What are you editing? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll just explain my, when I, um, not in the guest submissions, cause when you submit to us, we want like a, a pretty well done post Published, by you polished, already. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, pretty polished. Um, but for our regular team of, I think we're now we're at 26 writers. I work on both. Yes. The basic grammar, punctuation, those things. I do that too. Um, but really I'm looking for developmental, like does this story flow the way it's written currently? Um, does it make sense the way it's flowing? Is there, is there movement in the story and also a good, strong takeaway because all of our posts have a personal story and then the takeaway that we want the reader to walk away with. Um, and so that's, I feel like that's like the, the, the bigger part of my job is does the story and the takeaway work all together? Um, is it structurally sound? Um, can it stand on its own or does it need a little bit of help? Um, does, do some paragraphs need to be switched around because the story is not quite making sense the way it's written? And it probably made sense to the writer when they're writing it. Cause when you're in the thick of it, you can't see. And that's why a writer comes in and comes out from, comes from the outside and says, Hey, I'm looking at this with fresh eyes and I just want 
to show you how perhaps these changes can help guide the reader. Um, Because I think that's what we're doing as writers. We're trying to guide the reader from one point to another, from understanding this thing um, to the next thing. Um, And so that's our job as editors is to make their work excellent in their voice. Yes. Uh, and, and you say, uh, you say in your own work, this idea and that storytelling can change the world. Um, so, I mean, as an editor, you're trying to tell a better story. Um, yes. But why, why story? Like, what is it about? Why does that, why does that change the world or how could that change the world? (sighs) I mean, you know, growing up, I, I felt like the, the books I read opened up a whole new world for me. Um, and I think that gives us an imagination we might not have in the context that we're in. And I think that's why it can change our lives and therefore create movements that change the world. Um, and so books are, books are like a magical portal (laughs) through which people can experience new things. Um, but also to see like, could we, could we create a better world Mm -hmm. for ourselves? Um, could we imagine that this is what people feel and experience, even though that has not been my experience? And can we feel empathy for that? So it's just so powerful when we tell a personal story, how it can impact the listener and the reader and how that change in that person can therefore create a, in the way that they talk about it and the way that they reshare the story, it can expand, um, in such a way that changes the world. And so, yeah, I, I think that's why we tell our stories. And, you know, before we had the written word, uh, we had a lot of oral stories and I think we've lost a little bit of that, mm. um, in our current digital world, but that we can regain that, um, via the digital world by sharing on the internet. Um, and then the whole world can read it. So this this book, this most recently published by Encourage, it's called Take Heart, mm-hmm. 100 Devotions to Seeing God When Life's Not Okay. I yeah. want to talk about that, like the <laughs> let when life's not okay. But but as yes. uh, to get us there, as you're a storyteller yourself, you're not just the editor, but you're a contributor to this work. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you um, as a Korean American woman uh, to see your part in this book. But what did it mean to you to have your, your name in this book? You know, when I finished the project and I think a lot of creatives might relate to this, when you finish a project, you're just so happy it's done. (laughs) So I, I I don't think I imagined the moment when I would hold the book in my hands. Mm. Um, and because this isn't a solo book, it's a contributor contributor book. Um, I just didn't think much of it that, um, it would still have my name on the title page. So when I opened it for the first time and saw my name, um, I got emotional. I started crying Mm. uh, because I had not grown up seeing Korean American authors on the books I read. So whether as authors or even as illustrators, um, so seeing my own name there and also having my kids be so excited to see my name and go through and find the devotions that I, I wrote that it was as if I I came out of my body and watched something happen that I never got to experience, um, which is seeing myself reflected on the, 
um, on the page. Right. Wow. And how powerful that is when we see ourselves represented, even just by name, just knowing, looking at the last name Cho and knowing that's a Korean name. And that means a Korean person um, held, held this book, held the words um, and made an impact in that, in that way. So that was more meaningful to me than I had expected it to be. Um, and, and even just watching my kids flip through the book, that was, it healed something inside me, a wound I, I didn't realize I had. Um, but it, yeah, I was there. Wow. Well, and, and the topic of the book is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about things aren't going good. Where's God? So, so perfect for um, this year. <laughs> was this planned before 20? Did this come together in 2020 or was this something on the docket in no. 2018 and all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know how far, yes. away, how far in advance it was worked on, but oh my goodness. <laughs> um, it, it, I mean, it gives me chills to think that um, we had no idea that in October, 2020, when this book came out, it would, we would be where we're at, not just in America, but globally and how life really is. I mean, life is not okay. So many times in our lives, not just in 2020. Um, so we could not have planned this. Um, it was not by our doing necessarily. We were already going to write this book regardless of the kind of year we're going to have. And obviously none of us had an idea of what kind of year we would have, but, um, so it feels very providential that it landed where it did. Um, and even, you know, I was thinking, I mean, it could have come out in March, 2020, let's say, and maybe it wouldn't have, it would have felt like, yeah, we need that, but maybe not as deeply and desperately as we need to know that it's, it's okay when life's not okay. Um, when we were, you know, seven months into this pandemic, um, and all the hardships that this year has brought and all the loss that this year has brought. And so it's, it's been a a really meaningful time to hear people tell us that these stories help them know, um, yeah, they can see God even in, uh, really, really hard times. And even when it feels like there's no hope that God is still present. So I'm very proud of this book and proud of the words that we put together. Well, and, and what I love too about books like this that are compilations, as you say, first of all, representation of multiple voices means that yes. we will find ourselves in, in the book because it's not just one person's voice or perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but further to that, I think what I like about um, – compilations is as an ADHD kind of person, um, who is like, I need something to re- like, I need to be encouraged mm-hmm. or I need, um, some truth from scripture today, or I need, but like, you know, I'm distracted. I'm busy. Grab the book. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of, um, yeah, it's like a to go box. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, of truth, of encouragement, mm-hmm. of wisdom, mm-hmm. as opposed to yeah. sometimes, uh, a full piece, you know, it's just more than I can do, or even more, more than I have time for, or just more than right. I, you know, when you're overwhelmed, the last thing you need is like, here's mm-hmm. 300 pages on the topic. It's like, I just need like two pages or maybe four. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, I feel like, isn't that when we want stories the most, uh, I wrote in the introduction, um, that stories create space for us to be, to be known, to be understood. Um, and I think that's why stories are so powerful. And that's why the stories in this book, particularly, um, 
can just create space for the readers to come and rest um, and be understood and not have to fix themselves, even approaching this book. You can just come as you are and know that other um, others have experienced similar things or understand your pain, even if we haven't experienced mm-hmm. the very same thing. Wow. Yeah. Um, so uh, the last question I have for you is, um, because you wrote about this, I actually, I wouldn't have thought to ask you about this, but you wrote mm-hmm. about an article on your own site around being Asian American in the midst of COVID-19. So in the midst right. of the craziness of things not being okay. Oh, also maybe, mm-hmm. um, because of how I look, I'm a target for people's yes. anger or something in my country about COVID. Can you t- tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Cause like, that's not like we're talking about life's not okay. Like that's not okay. So what is, what has been your experience with that? Can you share a little bit about what you wrote? Sure. Um, I believe I wrote it. Um, it showed up on encourage. So, um, I'm very proud of the work that encourage and Dayspring has done, um, to not only allow, but welcome the stories of all our writers and all our experiences. Um, and saying that, um, they back us on that, that they support us and that they see us. And they believe you. Um, <laughs> that they, be- oh my gosh, yes, that they believe our experiences. And I think that's the hardest thing. Anytime someone's going through pain and someone else comes in and tries to explain it away, that's, that's being so, um, we're invisible and we're already unheard. And so to have, to have that, to have that belief in us, is so huge and, um, encouraging Dayspring has been, um, a big, they've, they've made that central to, um, to their work. And so I I appreciate that. But, um, my experience of being Asian American, and I, I think I tell the story of going to a gas station. Um, and this was during maybe March when things started getting more serious here in the States. And there was a man who pulled up behind me um, who looked at me a strange way and then proceeded to go back in his car. And I saw his car go around and go to a different, um, pump at the, at the same gas station. Mm. And I thought, how, what was he thinking Right, that he had to go away from me because there was no other reason. Someone else came up into that, to that same pump after he left and it was working fine. So it wasn't that the pump wasn't working. It was that he took a look at me and decided somewhere in himself that I'm not safe because of the way that she looks. Um, and I was afraid, you know, to walk with my kids around the neighborhood because I wasn't quite sure how people would react to us when, um, when the way people are talking about the virus uh, was in relation to it coming from China. And, and how, how many times in my life I've been called Chinese, even though I'm not. So people making judgments about me, um, and assuming things about me because of the way I look, I know that's not only an Asian American experience, um, but being othered in that way, um, is so painful. Um, and also it caused a lot of fear. And I don't know if you read that story. There was a family who went to Sam's club and, um, someone came and slashed their faces and I, yeah, 
They're kids. They're kids. What? Okay. No, I, I know. know. Oh, God, I don't know this story. It was uh, when I when I read it, I thought that that's what I'm afraid of is that people are going to assume things about me and my family um, and, and the rise of anti-Asian racism that has happened um, during this pandemic has been painful to watch. And so not only that, but, you know, even hearing elderly people getting attacked and that is, that is never an okay thing. And it's, it's never okay that we make, um, someone a target because of the color of their skin or because of the way they look or any of that. And so it's been a fearful experience as someone who has anxiety, um, or who struggles with anxiety, I should say. Um, and who already has, uh, I, I, as a mother, I think I just fear for my kids all the time. So to have that heightened sense of, are my kids even safe in our neighborhood? And nothing has happened in our neighborhood, but that experience at the gas station was so, um, subtle and it was, um, you know, where we always go to get gas. So it felt like, no, this is our home place. This is where we get gas. This is where we go shopping. And yet I'm not safe in these places. I'm not safe. Um, maybe, you know, this person didn't attack me obviously, even with his words, but I'm not safe from the mentality he had that I am a danger to him. Um, even though I don't have the virus and I am not the virus, but he made that assumption in that look he made, um, or he gave me. So, um, and I, I, I know a lot of people have felt discriminated, particularly Asian Americans during the pandemic. And, um, yeah, it's, it's painful. And I, and I think it makes a difference how we use our language, uh, the use of our words and how we refer to things. Um, it's so important that, um, we're careful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, because words matter, you're an editor. Yes. Uh, and, and (laughs) because, uh, we need to take heart right now. Mm -hmm. Um, this book was put together. So, you know, where can people find more of you? Uh, I think people are going to want to get more of you and your thinking, your, your perspective, um, and this book, where do you want to send people today? Sure. For me, you can go to gracepicho.com. I'm also Grace Picho on all platforms. Um, and for the book, you, I, I believe you can buy it wherever books are sold. Um, dayspring.com has it. And also dayspring.com has the, the take heart journal that comes with it, the prayer journal. Um, so you can get that as a set or you can get them separately. Um, but I know you can find it out on Amazon and, um, Target. I've seen it at Target. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it on various sites. So wherever books are sold. I got to tell you one thing about the pandemic that us Canadians are missing is Target because we oh, can't I'm cross sorry. the border right now. And I usually go to Target <laughs> as often as I can be in America, but it's fine. <laughs> but I it's can go, on Don't Amazon, go to Target. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, Grace, uh, thank you so much, um, for your openness, uh, for sharing your story or a few of them anyways, a glimpse into your story today yeah. and for your work, um, helping others share theirs as you edit their work and, um, and just inspire more people who are listening and want to write or are writers mm-hmm. and are, 
people of color or, you know, women who are trying to bring their perspective to the world. Just thank you for your work. And I'm just glad to do this conversation with you today. Thank you. Grace Picho, thanks so much for joining and bringing a perspective that was fresh and one that we just don't hear enough of. Next up on the podcast, speaking of voices we don't hear enough of, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. If you don't know her yet, she's recognized internationally as a foremost leader in reconciliation and featured as one of the 50 most influential women in Christianity today. She has written about the heart of racial justice and written about how to have a credible witness and talked about a roadmap to reconciliation in a world of racial justice. So Brenda Salter-McNeil is a powerhouse and an inspiring voice, and I can't wait to bring her to you next week. Thanks so much to Wycliffe College for making this podcast possible. Check out wycliffecollege.ca slash digital for not only free swag, if you let them know you stop by, but also just an amazing opportunity to grow in your own discipleship, grow in your leadership. Thanks also to Compassion Canada, who makes this podcast possible, who serves with and through the local church with the greatest needs and most vulnerable children in the world. So thank you so much for what you're doing, Compassion, and it's a privilege to be part of it. You can check out a link below if you wanted to learn more about what they're up to, what they're about, what their values are, and maybe how you can get involved. Of course, I would love you to join the Facebook group, Digital Church Facebook group, or check out the WordMate Digital Tutorials, free resources for you. These are both resources to equip you, serve you as a leader, and connect you to other leaders. Okay, see you next week, my friends, with Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil. You're going to love it. Thanks for listening to the WordMate Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.